According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we're in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, looking at the psalm that is inserted in verses 13 through 18. Solomon inserted a psalm at this point in chapter 3, which recaps the verses which precede it. Point 6 in the outline. The doctrine contained in this psalm, verses 13 through 18, is a recap. It's a, it's a refresher course on the doctrine that's taught in the first 12 verses of this chapter. Remember, this chapter begins by asserting the benefits, the long-term benefits of a life spent in the Word of God. And so we have that doctrine, that content restated here in the uh, composition of this uh, psalm. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, <clears throat> allow distractions to be set aside, ask the Father to bless our time together, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you. Father, you are the creator God of the universe, and we are creatures of dust. And who are we, Father, that we should be invited into your presence? And yet, Father, by your grace, you have placed us into union with your Son. You have revealed yourself. You have blessed us, Father. And we thank you for that blessing. We accept it as a grace gift. We redeem it, Father. We ask uh, for diligence to humble ourselves before you, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all those who hold her fast. And so it begins with happy, it ends with happy, okay? I understand right now there's a pop song out there called Happy that, that's uh, real trendy and catchy and uh, topping the charts and all the whatever, all right? I'm not that big on pop music. I don't follow the trends. <clears throat> However, when Weird Al Yankovic makes a parody of it, I actually learn, I learn more about pop music when that happens than, uh, than other things. Anyway, no, happy is not a pop trendy song you can dance to. Happy is the mental attitude of a believer who is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who is being given the divine viewpoint perspective to respond and appreciate to the blessings God supplies. It is a different term for blessing, and we want to make sure that we're solid on it. So subpoint A, as we get started, this is a happiness psalm. It is a beatitude. If this was in Matthew chapter 5, we would call it a beatitude. If it was Jesus saying, blessed are, we would call it the beatitudes, like we have in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not Jesus, it's Solomon, and it's not in Matthew 5, it's in Proverbs. Um, but we call it a happiness psalm. There are several, including Psalm 1, Psalm 119. Psalm 32, I think, is another one. There's several happiness psalms, the, the Asherah psalms that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, like Psalm 1, Psalm 119, there's others, I think, like I say, Psalm 32, perhaps, 
might be worthwhile just to find them and make a list so that you can look them up later and read through them. <clears throat> but you'll understand happiness as God provides it is, is miles apart from how the world defines it. <laughs> and there's no question there. Carnal humanity creates its own definition of happiness, and usually it's just more carnality. And it's not even happiness, but they convince themselves that it's happiness, or they talk themselves into it as if it is happiness. All right? Um, the term is asherei, A-S-H-R-E-Y, number 835 in the Strong's Concordance, asherei. And if you remember the name Asher, we talked about that last week. We went back to Genesis and we saw the birth of Asher along with the other tribes of, uh, of Israel. <clears throat> and when Asher was born, his mother said, okay, I'm happy now, right? Because she was in this competition with her sister and the handmaidens as far as who could have the most babies and, and through those babies then who could uh, have the love of their husband. And uh, again, I think it's a false definition of what makes you happy, all right? Are you counting on your marriage to make you happy? Are you counting on your children to make you happy? Are you counting on your job to make you happy? What are you counting on to make you happy? If it's not God's blessing, it's the wrong object. Asherah is the identification of happiness based on God's provision. And so we see it here. All right. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. It's the mental attitude of, of a believer with divine norms and standards that's responding to the blessings of God. It is not the Barak blessings, and that's what we want to highlight. There are different terms for bless. In the Hebrew, it's Barak or Baraka, right? Like Baraka Church. Barak, like our president, all right? That's the Arabic version of the Hebrew, Barak, all right? The verb means to bless. Baraka means blessing. And uh, in the New Testament, you've got eulagetos, you've got eulageo, you've got Greek terms for blessing, when God pronounces blessings, all right? It's not the stuff we get and we're happy about having stuff, all right? It's about the good things that God pronounces. God pronounces good things, such as, I am righteous in his sight. I'm happy he pronounced that. That's a good thing. That's a blessing, all right? So the blessings that come from the source of God, the blessings he vocalizes, the blessings he pronounces, the blessings he extends, those are the baraka blessings from the Hebrew vocabulary or the eulageo uh, blessings from the Greek vocabulary. All right? It has nothing to do with our happiness. Our happiness, the blessedness or happiness we have in this perspective is the asherah from the Hebrew vocabulary or the makarios from the Greek vocabulary. When you go to Matthew chapter 5 and you read blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, cross those all off. Happy are, happy are, happy are. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are, all right? Makarios is a happiness. And, and as long as we're clear on that, I think we can proceed. We have the happiness based upon our perspective to identify the blessings, to identify the blessings. They are not the blessings. It is our perspective to appreciate and identify the blessings. And uh, that ought to be clear. If not, ask me after class and we'll try to explain it better. All right. Wisdom and understanding is infinitely, eternally profitable. This is the gain we should be seeking. Wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding is. Now, why do I say is instead of are? All right. It's spoken of in the singular. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. This is the poetry of, of verse 13, putting both wisdom and understanding in parallel. 
You're not going to find one without the other. If you're, if you're a student of the Word of God, if you're humble before Him, and if you're taking in doctrine, then you're going to gain wisdom and understanding. But then it says, for her, her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain is better than fine gold. And I think we learned a couple weeks ago that not all of your Bibles have the hers in verse 14, right? Like the old King James may not have her prophet and her gain in verse 14. But I think every Bible still has the she when you get to verse 15. All right? And we're introduced to a girl here. and We're going to be talking about this girl today and in the coming weeks and throughout these next few chapters here in, uh, in Proverbs. It is a her, and as a single her, I kind of crossed this point off and rewrote it and went back and forth between are and is, are and is, are and is. I finally settled on is. Wisdom and understanding combined together is infinitely, eternally profitable, okay? Because wisdom and understanding is the her, is the she, is the object of our embrace, this is the right object for our embrace. And we're going to see this in the upcoming verses. So we have Proverbs 3.14. We can relate it to 2 Timothy 3.16. We realize that on perspective, earthly wealth is simply a shadow. It is a picture. It points to heavenly wealth. It points to spiritual wealth. It is a reflection. And if we confuse the reflection with the reality, we're in trouble. And if we sacrifice the reality in order to accumulate more of the reflection, we're in even more trouble. 2 Timothy 3.16, we can put wealth into proper perspective. What is profit anyway? Say, well, it's a surplus, it's a gain, it's, it's uh, income over expenses. Well, kind of, all right? It is the increase, it is the benefit, all right? And in spiritual terms, in physical terms, if we spend then we're uh, limiting our profits because spending is on the decrease edge of the uh, side of the ledger. And we've got income and outgo and all that. In, in the spiritual life, expending doesn't diminish. It increases, all right? And uh, it's a marvelous conundrum that we have in the spiritual reality of wealth. All right, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It is profitable. You say, well, how am I going to get rich in Bible class? How am, I going to, how am I going to become a multimillionaire learning the Bible? All right, well, you will, spiritually speaking. It's the only way you're going to become spiritually wealthy is by taking in truth and then expending truth, increasing the capacity of your spiritual economics. All right, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Notice, for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Four dimensions of profitability. And teaching is only the first. All right? And that's where everybody wants to stop. They want to sit in Bible class. They want to fill their notebooks. They want to learn information, accumulate gnosis, as if that's the end of it. Well, wait a minute. Because you get to the second one, and it's, it's embarrassing, or it's unpopular, or it's not pleasant. Reproof. Reproof. What do you mean reproof? You're going to reprove me? What are you reproving me for? I'm a good guy. You should be preaching about those sinners. What are you preaching about me for? For correction. 
<laughs> Nobody wants to be corrected. Nobody wants to admit they're wrong. But the Scripture will correct you if you let it. And for training, the disciplined training in righteousness, the paideia training in righteousness, or the Hebrew musar training in righteousness. There are so many links in this passage with what we studied in the introduction to Proverbs chapter 1. The, uh, the activity of what Proverbs does, if you recall. And I'll get there in a moment. But it talks about uh, fools despise uh, wisdom and instruction. Remember that passage? This is the instruction of the Word of God. It is the disciplined instruction of the Word of God. It's not academic, it's disciplined. The thing that you learn through enforced discipline. It's your parents saying, well, it builds character. <laughs> what do you learn on those kind of events? All right. And you're not having fun, you're not liking it. But you're getting up, you're making your bed, you're doing your chores, you're obedient under authority, and you are learning far more than you think you're learning because you're learning thought processes and you're learning attitudes and you're learning um, principles. And this is the training in righteousness that the Word of God does. And maybe you don't, uh, maybe you can't put it in an outline or write it down on paper, but it's attitudinal how God teaches us in these realms of humility, in these realms of of instruction. But backing up a little bit, inspired by God and profitable. I cannot stress enough the obel of that profitable. Okay? Prophet able. Prophet able. Now, the key to prophet able is profiting. Okay? Um, just because it's prophet able, do not make the assumption, do not assume that it's automatic, because it's not automatic. It is not automatic, okay? Just because something is profitable doesn't mean you're going to profit from it any more than if something is dangerous, that you're going to be harmed by it, all right? Depends on what your connection is to that which is dangerous or your connection to that which is profitable. Are you engaging in that which is profitable in the way that it was designed to be engaged, all right? It has to be united by faith. We're told in Hebrews that the, the Word of God did not profit the Exodus generation because they did not unite it by faith. And so the problem is, and when, the, when the prophet doesn't take place, everybody wants to blame God or blame the Bible or blame the Word of God or blame something besides themselves. Okay, But they have no one to blame but themselves. You cannot blame the Word if it doesn't profit you because the Word itself is profitable, eternally, infinitely, unchangingly, immutably profitable. If it does not profit, then the ubble part is, needs to be explained, and the ubble part is readily explained by the fact that we don't let it happen, okay? That we don't let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us, that we don't dwell on the things above, that we don't unite the Word of God with faith, in which case it doesn't profit anybody if you're not using it. So this is the eternal profit. A couple of other things I think we can just add to it, including uh, Philippians. Let me grab that on my way back to Proverbs. Uh, Philippians, where he says, I've learned the secret of abundance. And um, interesting how he seeks the prophet, uh, not for the gift itself. Proverbs chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. That's Philippians 4.10. For you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And I says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
Okay? I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. <clears throat> he says, and, and, and this is the context too, by the way, for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In terms of where I fit in the economic wealth spectrum. All right? Am I down here at the filthy rich Bill Gates end of things? Or am I down here at the dead broke uh, widow's might spectrum on, you know, where am I on the spectrum? From the, the, the poorest pauper on earth to the richest guy on earth, where am I? Wherever I am, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God provides and I obey. It says, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. It's good for your sake that you have done this. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, verse 15 now, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, in other words, when he arrived in Corinth and got to the ugliness there, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Only one church supported the Apostle Paul on that missionary journey. It was the church of Philippi. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, Thessalonica would have. They had the right attitude. They could have. They should have. The problem was all their funds were tied up in the courts, that they had submitted a bond, surrendered some funds because of, of Jason and, and guaranteeing that they're not going to come back to town again. They didn't have the funds to support the Apostle Paul anymore. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, here's maybe the most important verse of this whole section. He says, not that I seek the gift itself. You know, the money you sent was great. You know, whatever it was, 100 bucks, 10 bucks, 50 drachma, okay, whatever it was. That's not the point. The point is, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. The blessings you experienced in the process of giving, they laid up treasures in heaven. They glorified Jesus Christ. They pleased God the Father. They accomplished the assignment they were given to do. And so they profited. They profited. That's why you understand it's not like earthly money. Where if I, if I, if I have a, a quantity in my pocket and I give you part of that, I have less. If I give you all of it, I have none. Okay? That's with the money in my pocket. But in spiritual terms, when you give, you give, you give, do you ever run out? You actually increase your capacity to give even more in spiritual terms. All right. So I seek the profit which increases to your account. And I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Did they send Paul a bunch of perfume? What did they send him? They sent him cash. Okay, Cold, hard cash. They sent him uh, probably, uh, probably Greek drachmas or, or Latin... Roman coins, uh, denarius or something. Whatever they sent him, and whatever currency, whatever denomination, whatever the, the, the uh, denomination was or the, the value was, is beside the point. What they sent was a sweet-smelling savor. It was before the throne of grace. It went up to the Father's throne of grace as a sweet-smelling savor, like the Levitical sacrificial system. And it was well-pleasing in God's sight. And is a consequence... My God will supply all your needs. Okay, this is the promise. They are not going to be hurt because they supported Paul. God will not allow them to be suffer to suffer because they were obedient to his plan to support the Apostle Paul. 
So don't ever be afraid to obey the will of God. Don't ever be afraid. If he's leading you to do something, leading you to give some money, leading you to, to make a, a missionary journey, leading you to, to um, pastor a church, leading you to what have you, there's an open door and he's leading you to do it. Don't ever let the thought cross your mind that, oh, I'm going I'm to suffer if I do that. He will not. He will meet your needs. My God will supply all your need. There should be a singular need there. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Well, we'll get there. I think Philippians is next after Galatians. So we'll get there and we'll teach that. We'll teach in this proper context because I think people abuse that verse. They, view, they throw that verse out there and they abuse it like they abuse Proverbs. And they misapply it out of context and demand that, uh, that they're totally flaming carnal, out of the will of God, pursuing all kinds of darkness. And then they wonder why God's not supplying all their needs. And then they blame Him. Well, God, you're not supplying all my needs. Yeah, you're a rebel, not, not living in the Word of God. And He never promised to supply the needs of a rebel not living in the will of God. Who did he promise to supply the needs for? The faithful Philippians that were obedient to the will of God and supplying Paul's needs. All right. Anyway, we'll get to there. (laughs) Stay tuned. Preview of coming attractions. Back to Proverbs. So wisdom and understanding is infinitely, eternally profitable. And boy, you uh, you can't beat that. There's no stock market portfolio that can match that. You know, they might give you a quarterly report and say, look, you were profitable this quarter, but is that going to carry through to next quarter or next quarter and the year after that? And is, it, is, is every investment eternally, infinitely profitable? Or could it be gone tomorrow? See, not so with God's wisdom. Silver, gold, jewels, and anything humanly desired is incomparable to her. is incomparable to her. And we need to identify this her. We need to identify the metaphor, the uh, nature of this message. But there are other things that are preferable. I mean, other things that are desirable. There are things that are intrinsically um, attractive. Okay? That are intrinsic, intrinsic, they have intrinsic value or intrinsic worth. Excuse me. And they are desirable. Is it wrong to desire what is desirable? Okay. Well, not if we don't abuse it or if we don't desire it in the wrong way or to an inordinate degree. Different applications here. Okay. Her profit is better than the profit of silver, her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. All these different terms. There's profit, there's gain, there's precious. All right. And nothing you desire compares with her. So we need to compare these expressions. Profit, gain, precious, and desire. And all four of those come together into a, into a schematic. They come together into a, <clears throat> into a concept. And everything in the human experience... Okay, the totality of everything you could want should be placed subservient to your desire for the things of the Lord. And if not, then we're maladjusted. We're maladjusted. If you have a priority scale that, that tips one way or the other, 
Okay? Doctrine or food? <laughs> okay? Doctrine or money? Doctrine or marriage? Doctrine or anything? Okay? If there is something that is valued and esteemed higher, then I suggest that's a maladjustment as per this text and elsewhere in the Word of God. Okay? And that's not to say those things aren't important. God knows you need those things. You know, I'm not saying it's doctrine or food and you can never eat again for the rest of your short life if you're not eating ever again, okay? <laughs> All right, we're not saying that. Don't carry it to the, the extreme. You know, when it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What's the all these things? Well, it's the food you eat, the covering, with the food and covering. Your father knows you need these things. The, the things that the Gentiles eagerly seek. The, the, the unbeliever of this world and the carnal believer of this world spends all their time just working and gaining stuff and making money so they can gain more stuff and working to eat and whatever else. Living for the weekend, all the stuff they're doing. Frantic inveterate search for happiness, okay? And the Bible says God knows you need those things. It's not stupid to work and put food on the table. You're commanded to work and put food on the table. But it has to be after your priority for the Word of God. Seek ye first, okay? Now, a couple of things that are implied there is not seek ye only. <laughs> it doesn't say seek ye only the Word of God. All you ever do is go to Bible class seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You never eat, you never sleep, you never drink, you never work, you never... No, come on. It says seek ye first, which implies what? Seek ye second, Seek ye third, seek ye fourth. Put those things in the right perspective. You're not wrong for working. You're not wrong for those other things as long as you seek ye first. Okay? It's not seek ye only. And likewise here. Silver, gold, jewels, nothing wrong with those. They are of value. And if, you, uh, if, if the Lord supplies such to you, He'll have a purpose for supplying such to you. There are instructions for those who are rich in this present age. And the purpose for why God placed you in such assignments? All right. So when it comes to silver or gold or jewels or anything, I like when it says, nothing you desire compares with her. And then it'll be expanded even beyond that in terms of long life, riches and honor, pleasant ways, peaceful paths, tree of life, and all these, all these things. Nothing you desire. Okay? And that's where you can put in marriage, relationships, women, children, um, jobs, any uh, you know, Mustang convertibles, whatever. Um, if you have a desire, all right, you're not wrong for that desire until that desire exceeds your desire for truth, until it exceeds your embrace of her, okay? until you, uh, your embrace of Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, that's what we're talking about here. Our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom. Jesus Christ, and we're going to see that. He's the Logos in the Gospel of John. He's wisdom in Proverbs. And as long as that doesn't bug you to have wisdom's a feminine noun, all right? And so we're going to have to understand the metaphor for what it is. I hope it doesn't bug you that uh, wisdom is spoken of as a her, and we're talking about embracing Jesus Christ. Anyway, so um, let's notice the her in verses 14 and 15. We have the her again 
in Proverbs 8. Verse 10, 11, and 19. I may not have a her reference. Oh, here we go. Silver, gold, and jewels. Anything humanly desired is incomparable. Incomparable. So it says, uh, take my instruction and not silver and choicest and knowledge rather than choicest gold. If someone puts a gun to your head and says it has to be one or the other, what's it going to be? Okay. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Desires are interesting. I think we, uh, we need a study on desire. Desire is not wrong, but it can be uh, maladjusted, and then it becomes fruitful for temptation and lust and everything else. Uh, verse uh, 19, my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. This is... Uh, Wisdom speaking here. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Uh, Wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. It's described here in in a reciprocal, intensified way. I love those who love me. Now, does that bug you? We'll get there when we get to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is, I think, the most powerful chapter in the whole book. But when we get there, we're going to see the reciprocal intensification of this. Now, it's not to deny his unconditional love. That's, that's also true. It's not to deny the love that saved us. That's also true. It's not to deny First John that we love because he first loved us. That's also true. All right? But in the rapport emphasis of phileo love, in the fellowship love of what can be responded to and what can be intensified is what we have here. I love those who love me. And this is what happens with the phileo love we have in addition to the agapao love. Okay? Does that make sense? We should have both. The, the agape, unconditional love, and the philos, rapport love. And that's the one that builds. And that's the one that's reciprocal. And that's the one that intensifies. Because we love the Word of God. The Word of God embraces us even more. And then we love the Word of God even more. And then the Word embraces us even more. Okay? And it gets... We're going to be... We're going to be adult about it, okay? But it gets uh, intimate. It uses language like of a man and a woman in the embrace and the rapport and the back and forth. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, chapter 16, more comparisons of the incomparable. Now that my mother's in heaven, I feel safe to uh, teach some of these steamy passages of uh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon and things like that. It would have been really awkward with my mom sitting here. <laughs> That's hilarious, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm virtually certain my mom didn't even know about sex. <laughs> Chapter 16 and verse 16. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold than, and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. There's the perspective again. When push comes to shove, what gets pushed? <laughs> okay, And what gets shoved? Um, Job 28. We were here not that long ago. Um, and I forget the reason why. There was a vocabulary term that we looked at in Job 28. 
verses 13 through 19. Where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. You know, the unbeliever, human viewpoint, they can value gold, they can value silver, but if you don't know the Lord, what, 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 what estimation do you put on wisdom? What, what value, how do you esteem doctrine? It's worthless to you. You don't even know its value. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. And yet Job understands pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. You understand glass used to be one of the most precious commodities on the planet. Now glass is useless. Glass is so cheap. Glass is everywhere. You can you know, smash it and buy a new one. There's no value to glass, but it used to be glass was uh, top dollar. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? And it, it shows a kind of an interesting exchange rate. Uh, Job must have really had a, an international reach in terms of his business dealings and in terms of his, uh, his uh, commerce. I find that to be extraordinary. Psalm 19.10. Trying to compare the incomparable. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, the poetry of this is so beautiful and it's heartbreaking that a lot of believers don't even recognize that law is different from testimony, different from precepts, different from commandment. Well, let's, let's start to rightly divide the word of truth. Let's break it down. Let's study. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And then the combined total of all of that, seven through nine, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb, even tastier than bacon. Ooh. Oh, Dan didn't hear that. Okay. Uh, finally, Psalm 119 and verse 72. Psalm 119 and 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Thousands of gold and silver pieces. If you had thousands of gold and silver pieces, you could live very comfortably for a long, long time. Your children would continue living on that depository. And yet, the Word of God is more important. Nothing else is comparable. Her hands are both beneficial. Her hands are both beneficial. We're still talking about her. Proverbs 3.16. Her right hand and her left. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. 
This is fun. Nowhere has the herb been introduced. <laughs> it's just understood. All right. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Both hands are beneficial. Both hands are full, waiting for you to reach out and take hold. There's a good article in the theological um, workbook of the Old Testament on the right and left hands. I found it useful, thought I'd share it with you. There we go. This is a uh, large entry on left and right. This is the theological workbook, word book of the Old Testament. And uh, describing the difference between left and right, Samuel for left, and here we go. The left refers to that which pertains to the left side of someone's body, such as Ehud's left hand, or that which is uh, in the left direction as opposed to the right. Uh, the fact that Ehud was left-handed allowed him to carry out his plans for the assassination of Eglon. Guards would have noticed he had no dagger on his left hip. That would be the usual place. But being left-handed, he had it on his right side, easily concealed. In numerous cases, the expression to the right hand or to the left appears in Scripture describing a straying from the straight path. We talked about that when we talk about walking in the upright, that we are to be upright in the walk of wisdom. Thus, in the literal geographical sense, Moses, when leading the children of Israel into the promised land, promises the king of Heshbon that Israel will stay on the highway and will neither turn to the right hand or to the left. Figuratively, Deuteronomy 17, a warning is given against turning aside from God's commandments to the right hand or to the left. See, and that's, that's the snare, and Satan doesn't care. You know, if right or left doesn't bother him any. Whatever it is that keeps you from focusing on Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes the right side is portrayed as the good alternative and the left side is the evil alternative. There are passages that will present the right hand as the hand of blessing and and favor and the left hand as the hand of judgment. Um, So Ecclesiastes 10, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Okay, And that's also a good passage, I think, for politics, wisdom on the right, the fool on the left. But that's only, if I got political here this morning, I'm not going to go there. Likewise, in the New Testament, Christ places the good sheep on the right, the evil goats go to the left. Again, I'm not going to get political on that this morning. Now, um, the left side, in some cases, however, merely refers to another alternative from that on the right being equally evil. Sometimes they're both choices are evil. If God is putting you under maximum judgment, then right and left, both hands are going to be full of evil. And we're going to get to the opposite side of that here in Proverbs, where both hands are full of good. Okay? But there are cases under judgment where both hands are equally evil. Isaiah 9.19, being hungry on the right and unsatisfied on the left. But then sometimes poetry will present both hands as being good. And that's what we have here in Proverbs. Length of day is on the right. Riches and honor on the left. Finally, we have uh, north and south references. Uh, the, the terms left and right sometimes mean north and south because everything is considered facing east. So west would be behind you and east would be in front of you. Anyway, other idioms from, uh, from the Hebrew, but we can let that go. All right. So, as far as she is concerned, 
the mystery woman of this chapter, the her that we are desiring and embracing, uh, she has everything good in both hands, right hand, left hand, okay? Everything good. There's not a hand that's bad when you're embracing her. And that's the point. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. So here is a her that we should be embracing. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. All right, we got ways and paths. Here's the poetry here. Ways and paths, and uh, pleasant and peace being described here. Point E. Her ways and paths are pleasant and peace. Think of it as an intersection. The intersection of pleasant way and peace path. (laughs) Okay? How's that for an address? How would you like to live there? Well, you should be living there. You should be living at the corner of pleasant way and peaceful path. Okay? Naomi way and Solomon path. You want to think of it in in those terms. Common in, it's common in poetry to link ways with path. It's the light into our path, right? We've got, it's very common in Psalms and Proverbs and so forth, the ways and the paths. He will make your ways straight or he will make your paths straight. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths or your steps. Common in poetry to link ways with paths. And I think that's, that's significant, I think it's um, if, we, if we have to distinguish between them, we can identify that there's um, distinctions to be found within the, the, the experience of our life. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, but that's different from the maybe a precise path that you take or particular steps on that path. If you really want to get down to the, the if you zoom your lens in that tight, all right. And so if we have ways, we can think of ways as a more general or broad understanding of it. Paths is more uh, specific because it speaks of the precise route you choose while you are on that way. And then steps would be even more precise, even beyond paths. But both are in view. I think both are significant. Because God is concerned with, with not only what we do, but how we do it. The reasons why we do it. He's concerned with our ways and our paths. All right? So in terms of being in the Word of God, what are your ways and what are your paths and what are your steps? All right? As far as being a disciple of Jesus Christ, as being a, a church-age believer priest, what are your ways? Say, well, my ways... Um, a way might be considered whether or not you are um, a churchgoer. That would be part of your ways. Are you a part of a local assembly? Okay, There are believers that aren't a part of any local assembly. That's not a, that's not a definition of, of their ways. They have different ways. <laughs> okay, They still profess to be in Christ. They still profess to name the name of Christ. But their ways don't include um, being under the, the consistent teaching of the Word of God under the shepherding ministry of a pastor-teacher. That's, a, that's an entirely different way from what they're on. Okay? It's not that's the, the way you're on, you understand. Okay? That's a good way to be on. 
But then if that's, if that's the way in a broad sense, in general terms, that I am a disciple of the Word of God, I'm in a flock, I'm under authority, I'm under teaching, I'm being fed, that's, those are my ways, then what are the paths within those ways? Something more precise, something more specific. Say perhaps the path would be uh, Austin Bible Church. It would be the, the precise route that you choose to fulfill those ways. Okay? And don't ever assume, it's prideful arrogance to assume that everybody that's not on the Austin Bible Church path, well then clearly they can't be under doctrinal teaching. Well, wait a minute. There are other paths within the ways of doctrinal teaching, of being under the Word of God. Okay? Being under the Word of God. So we have ways, we have paths, is more precise, and then we would have steps. Steps on that path. All right, particular steps on that path that might be even more focused, even more detailed in terms about um, uh, how often you're under teaching. If, it, if, if your appetite is of the once a month variety or the two or three Sundays a month variety, or if you're the six times a week variety or somewhere else in between, okay? I mean, there is, there is food available 300 plus times a year in, in this facility. And there are folks that take about 20 of them every year, okay? And there's a spectrum in between. So there are steps on the path, and there are paths within the ways. You see how this works? And there's a um, parallelism in this, and it's pr- fairly common, I think, in the uh, Old Testament to contrast these here. Job 24, 13. And you'll notice it's in all your ways you acknowledge him. That's much broader than a very specific, precise, focused, um, a lot of the detailed precision people want to apply to that verse. Uh, so here's the uh, Job 24:13. Others have been with those who rebel against the light. They do not want to know its ways, nor abide in its paths. You see the parallelism there? It's ways and it's paths. The light has both ways and paths. One is a much broader term and one is more specific. And uh, when it comes to this crowd that Job is talking about, they don't want any of them. Okay? Talking about uh, they, they, they. All right. And then others. Uh, Proverbs one fifteen. which we've already seen. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. A a broader term, a a more specific term. And both are used. They're used in the the parallelism of the Hebrew poetry here in this verse. And so we have uh, their ways and their paths. And when you're warning your children against the wrong crowd, <laughs> are you just warning them about the wrong crowd in general? The ways? Or are you also highlighting certain paths within those ways that uh, likewise are to be avoided? I think both are in view. And then the steps. Feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. 
Uh, chapter 3 and verse 17 is our passage today with ways and paths. Her ways are pleasant ways. All her paths are peace. Uh, it'll come back again in chapter 7. The parallelism of it again in chapter 7. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways and do not stray into her paths. Now, the, the general one is, is listed first. In fact, I don't think we've seen it in the other order yet. I think it's always been ways and paths, ways and paths. Um, and the, and the, the, I think the benefit is if you have the priority at the larger level, you, do, you don't have to worry as much about the, the smaller level because it's included. All right? It's included. There's a, a, not a, uh, a snare there. If uh, general principles of holiness... Uh, if they are learned by our children, if they are pursuing righteousness and, and so forth, if they have the larger scope in their frame of reference for their application, then the more particular um, uh, defined applications of that, you're less worried about, right? Less worried about the particular paths of, of darkness because they have the larger ways of light that they are pursuing, if that makes any sense. And I think this is the, uh, the, the nature of it here. Notice, even uh, if you back up to verse 7 with, with knucklehead here and the, the, the young man lacking sense, all right? I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense passing through the street near her corner. And he's on the wrong path. He's on the wrong, he's on the wrong path, but how did he get on that path? Well, he's going the wrong way to begin with. He takes the way to her house. He didn't have to go that way. But because he chose to go that way, he put himself on that path. You see, there's a, the, the broader term, there's a more specific term. And not only was he on that path, or on that street, technically it's street, not path there, but near her corner, okay, but see, he didn't even have to go there. Why did he even go that way? There was another way he could have gone. Probably went out of his way to go this way. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. You know, he walked past that corner four different times. <laughs> he walked past that corner in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Finally, he encounters her. The woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Oh, wow. What a coincidence. Funny running into you here. Oh, I just happened to be in the neighborhood and happened to be passing by four different times. All right. Is he really, truly going to face a volitional battle at this moment? Is he really, truly going to be, be, is he going to have to make a choice between fornication or, or, or not? He's already lost that battle. He lost that battle attitudinally, mentally, hours ago. When he said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that way. I'm going to take that path. He already, he was making provision for the flesh with regard to its loss. And when you do that, when you do that, you've already lost the battle. Don't think that, oh, well, I still have an opportunity to repent or confess or get back in fellowship. You know how dark you are? Look how many steps you took to provide for that lust. Anyway, we'll get to there when we get to chapter 7. 
But here's the thing. Do not... Um, it says in verse 24, Therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart... It starts with the attitude. It starts with where is your priority, where your heart is, or where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, and do not stray into her paths. If you're going in those ways, you're going to be on one of those paths. Many are the victims she has cast down. <laughs> you're not special. You're the next in a long line of losers that have just that have been ripped to shreds. Numerous are all her slain. All right. Chapter 8 and verse 2. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice on top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. So there's a usage of way and paths used in parallel, very frequent, used in parallel. Finally, uh, chapter 12 and verse 28. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. So there we have it. Pleasant and pleasure. Pleasant and pleasure. Well, here's some terms we need to define. Pleasant and pleasure are descriptions of purity from God's viewpoint. However, by the world's definitions... Pleasant and pleasure are frequently perversions of God's design. Pleasant and pleasure. There's a lot of words we can use in conversation. And if we're not careful, the people we're talking to aren't going to have the first clue what we're talking about. Because if they are conformed to this world, if they have a cosmos viewpoint for things then what we find pleasurable, they find stupid or worthless or boring. And what they find pleasurable, the Bible describes as perverted. The perversions of what cosmos wisdom has done to God's beautiful design. It's like what they've done with love. They've redefined terms. They've redefined so much. And say, well, this is just, this is our form. This is our version. This is our alternative way. It is not God's design, and it is a perversion of God's design. And what's even worse is if you do find it pleasurable, that's an even bigger problem. Why has your soul now been attuned to take pleasure in something that God did not design to be pleasurable? Why does it, time and time again, does God say, my soul takes no pleasure in a person, a thing, a sin, or what have you, a circumstance? My soul takes no pleasure. Well, why is that? And I think what we're going to find more often than not is we're going to find that pleasure and pleasant and um, uh, these, these terms are reflect like, like agape love. They are reflecting the integrity of the giver. They are reflecting the integrity of the, the one who takes pleasure. Okay? As opposed to just a, an attribute of something that we say is, we say, well, that's tall, that's short, that's old, that's young, that's, that's uh, pleasurable. 
Don't think of pleasurable as as a as a, a characteristic that's um, like those other. It's not. It's not an absolute. You can choose what you take pleasure in that other people don't take pleasure in. God chooses what He takes pleasure in. Okay. And so I think it's much more subjective than we often think about. All right, so let's see. We've got three minutes. Um, the idea of pleasure and pleasant, and the you, to try to remove them from purity, I think, is a problem because God incorporates purity in many of these uh, many of these references. All right, Proverbs two and verse ten. Wisdom will enter your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. This is the the pleasant that we should the, the pleasant response we should have to the truth of the word of god knowledge will be pleasant to your soul pleasure in god's viewpoint 317 is our passage today her ways are pleasant ways all her paths are peace 1526 another use for this pleasure evil plans are an abomination to the lord but the pleasant but pleasant words are pure you see the link there? Pleasant words are pure. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. If you're taking pleasure in what God calls an abomination, look out. Finally, 16.24, Proverbs 16.24. We saw this already. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. However, by the world's definitions, pleasant and pleasure are frequently perversions of God's design, as in the case of of uh, Proverbs nine seventeen, hmm. stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh come on, it'll be fun. It's always fun. Hmm. The woman of folly is boisterous. It says in verse thirteen, she is naive and knows nothing. And uh, that's going to pair up real well with the naive man that knows nothing. And she sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Notice who the main target is. The one that she wants to trip up. That's right. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. All right. Well, we'll come back to this. We're going to contrast the tree of life with the future tree of life. We're going to talk about wisdom personified. We're going to discuss the right kind of woman to embrace, the wrong kind of woman to embrace. All of this is introduced with the her, her, she, she, the feminine singular pronoun throughout this passage, it will get a greater development in chapter 8 because then we have wisdom personified, introduced, and named. I think there will be more also in uh, chapter 5 when we talk about the woman to be running away from and the woman to be uh, caressing. All right. Yep, got that coming up also. So Anyway, Lord willing, rapture pending, we got much more to go. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen.